will make some of you extremely happy when I ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to study tonight from Revelation. Some of you, I will pull that happiness away when I tell you we're going to understand the book of Revelation before we're done because you think we're not going to leave until tomorrow morning. But we will not be here all night. We'll study it shortly. We're going to look at just a minuscule slice of this marvelous revelation from God. It is an honor to be with you. Thank you so very much for your kindness. You've treated me so very graciously, and I love the privilege of having the opportunity to speak God's word, and thank you for having me to be a part of this uh, short time together. You understand the book of Revelation. To understand the book of Revelation, you only need to understand one thing primarily. Everything else is subtext. Everything else is dressing in the window. The thing you need to understand is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, that is a message sent to John, that it is signified, in signs signified of things which must shortly come to pass. And if you can understand, it's written in signs that'll keep you from getting wrapped up in who the 144,000 are, what the mark of the beast is, who the demon is, who the dragon is, and all those peripheral issues that really only lead to one thing that God's people ultimately win. The second thing to understand is it is of things which must shortly come to pass. And that word shortly is a neat little Greek word that means, are you ready for this? You might want to write this down or to change your understanding. Some of you understand the book of Revelation if you understand what the word shortly means in the Greek. You ready for it? Get ready. It means shortly. Shortly is not 2,000 years. And I know the text says the day of the Lord is as 1,000 years. 1,000 years is a day. That is a miscommunication of that specific verse. The word shortly in Revelation means things that would happen shortly. That is not generation after generation. That is not 2,000 or 2,000 plus years later. It is a revelation of things that will shortly come to pass. The book is written primarily, he says in that text, one other thing that would be helpful to us to understand. It's written to seven churches in Asia. Seven churches. My Uncle Dan, years ago, I remember when I was in high school, we had a class on the book of Revelation. He said, the way to remember these seven churches is real easy. You ready? E-S-P-T-S-P-L. E-S-P-T-S-P-L. Now, if you're like me, that, that will never leave your mind. E-S-P-T-S-P-L. Stayed in my mind now for over 40 years. I don't think it's ever going to go away. I'll probably sit on a, a nursing home bed somewhere someday, and I'll have dementia, and I'll just be saying E-S-P-T-S-P-L. Everybody wonder why in the world I'm talking about. It's such a strange little phrase. Those initials of the seven churches. Now, what they are, it didn't help me, and I'll remember what they are, but I remember E-S-P-T-S-P-L. Are you ready? Here they are. Ephesus, Smyrna. Pergamon, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven churches. And I want to introduce a word to you tonight that is an important word. It's not a word that you've used in your home in the last decade or so. It's not a word you hear very often. You only hear it in confines of a church building or when spiritual matters are being discussed. The word is the word autonomous. Autonomous. We use the word autonomy sometimes in talking about the church. And it dawned on me while reading the book of Revelation several years ago that the church is to be autonomous. And that idea, that word means self-governing, self-ruling, independent, unmonitored, or sovereign. The only word that disturbs me in that definition is the last, the word sovereign but it may be the most important of definitions for the word autonomy. A church is sovereign. That means it has no one on earth telling it what to do. 
And what I've learned from my life spent in the Lord's church is that we are fiercely, we are fiercely autonomous. We believe in that doctrine. We are fiercely independent. Do not allow one church to try to tell another church what to do or what to believe. We are non-denominational. There is no headquarters. It's hands down directions to us. And it is a good thing. It is of the wisdom of God. Think about God's marvelous wisdom here. He does have to write to different cultures and different peoples and different ages and different, uh, different ideologies. So rather than God's book of law, also God's book of love, in God's book of law, it's not like the law codes that we have in America where there's book upon book upon book and every year there are more books added to identify and to communicate new laws and explain new laws. Imagine if God's word was that way. It would be billions of pages long and we would never be able to grasp it. What God says is, I've taken 27 little mini books, 260 chapters, and I've taken these chapters of this book and I'm going to tell you what is important. And hear this, church, the rest of it is up to each individual church. There won't be a headquarters on earth. No church is going to tell another church how to behave. It's a beautiful thing. And while it's a thing of beauty, I am not sure that most churches in the 21st century really believe in autonomy. While it is of God and of His wisdom, my experience is there are a lot of churches trying to tell other churches how they ought to behave. There are things we will admit that are in the realm of gray, but we will not fellowship people who practice things in the realm of gray. There are things in matters of opinion that sometimes if we're not careful, we exclude people from our fellowship that disagree with us in matters that we would readily admit are matters of gray or at least we'll look at them different or with a little suspicion or hold them at, length, at arm's length. I don't know where that word came from. At arm's length, we'll, we'll kind of back away from them because they do X, whatever X is. So let me ask you, which of these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, or Laodicea, which of those seven churches were you living in the first century which of those seven congregations would you have chosen to be a part of? Think about it for a minute. Which one would you have placed your membership at? Which one of, you would, which one of them, as the text says, Paul assailed to join himself the disciples that are in Jerusalem? Which one of those group of disciples would you have decided that you wanted to join yourself with? Elders are to oversee the flock and they are to give an account for individual Christians. Which eldership of those seven churches would you want to be responsible for your soul? Let's think about them for a few minutes. Of course, there's the church at Ephesus. You may not be aware of this, but when I tell you, you will, you will agree, you will know it to be a fact. We know more about the church at Ephesus than any other church in the Bible. More of the Bible is written to or from the church at Ephesus than any other, part, any other book of the Bible. Think about it. There is, of course, obviously, the book of Ephesians. There's First and Second Timothy. Paul left uh, Timothy in Ephesus and sent him letters there. There is the book of Acts, that a good part of it is based out of Ephesus. There is, of course, the book of Revelation that we're studying tonight. 
And there is, some people believe, John 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Many people believe that when John wrote those books that he was living in Ephesus. More of the New Testament is written from Ephesus than any other part of your Bible. But think further. Think of the people who are members of the church at Ephesus. When I moved to Eva, Alabama in 1984 to work with the church there, the first congregation I ever worked with on a full-time basis, it was not long, in fact, probably the first Sunday I was there, that I met a man by the name of Shorty Ryan. <clears throat> Shorty was a mayor of Eva, Alabama. Eva has 300 people that live in it. Shorty had been the mayor of Eva for 24 years. And that year he was up for re-election. And no one was going to run against him. And somebody told me the way he has been mayor for 24 years is he buys votes. So I asked him about it. It seemed a little shady, a young preacher. So I went to him and asked him. He said, yes, I guess you could say I do. I go to people and I give them a ham and I say, if you will not vote for me, this ham can be yours. I don't want to be mayor. And they vote for me anyway. Well, we had the mayor of this small city as a member of our church. He was an important person in that small city. It wasn't too very long until I moved to another place. When I was at Granny White in Nashville, we had in our service every week, George Jones' widow. George Jones' widow. You know George Jones, don't you? Famous country music singer. Some of you may not know him. Some of the younger people may not know him. His widow worshiped with us. Some of you don't know what George Jones' name, real name was. Anybody here know what George Jones' real name was? It was Harold Jenkins. Uncle Harold. Not really. But it was Harold Jenkins. <laughs> But I remember the first time I walked up and somebody introduced me to George Jones' widow and said, this is, and called her name, she is George Jones' widow. And I know what I said to her. Hello, darling. <laughs> 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 uh, not really. <laughs> Minnie Pearl's cousin worshipped in that church. There are some famous people in that church. I visited a church out in California several years ago. And in the audience was sitting Weird Al Yankovic. Often wondered if he ever led a song, what it would be like. <laughs> There's something about famous people. Well, the church of Ephesus was full of famous people. Have you ever thought about who was a part of the church of Ephesus? Think about it with me. There was Paul's two best co-workers, Aquila and Priscilla. How special would that have been? They were a part of that congregation. Of course, Timothy was a member there. What a bright young star Timothy was. A bright young individual studying and preaching and preparing himself so very well and was so very well gifted for God's work. Of course, you had Apollos there. And on Sundays when Timothy didn't preach, I wonder if Apollos preached. Apollos, a man eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. Beautiful voice, apparently. At least you had to put words together well. And he was unbelievable in his talents and his gifts and mighty in the scriptures. Many people believe that Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. And that is a possibility. I would say he's a candidate. We don't know who did it. But it's an eloquent book. In fact, my Hebrew teachers tell me it is the second most eloquent book in the Bible. Second only to the book of Psalms in the Hebrew language. Uh, Hebrews was written in Arabic, most, most of it, not in the Greek language. A couple of chapters in the Greek language. Of course, you had in the church not only these individuals, but you had some people believe that, that uh, you, well, there's no doubt Paul was a part of that church for a while. Imagine 
next Sunday. He stands up. We got Brother Paul back with us today. Thought we about asking him to bring us a word. Brother Paul didn't preach with a clock, he preached with a calendar. <laughs> then in that church you had, in all likelihood, you had John. John spent some time in, in Ephesus. And if John was there, you know who else would have been there if John had been there? Think for a minute. If some of you may think about it immediately. Mary would have been a part of that church. The text says that Jesus from the cross said, Behold your son, behold your mother. And from that day forward, John went and abode with Mary, or Mary went and abode with John. If he was in Ephesus and Mary was still alive, Mary would have been Ephesus. Imagine if you teach an adult class and you're standing up teaching on child rearing and Mary is in your audience. <clears throat> that would have been a little intimidating, I imagine. What an audience that would have been. But I would not have wanted to be a part of the church at Ephesus, I don't believe. Because the text says, Paul gave a warning in Acts chapter 20, but you had to get, by the time you get to, to Revelation, the text says, you've left your first love. You ever walked in a church and felt like the people there didn't love each other? I have. It's a horrible feeling. Imagine a church where people didn't care for each other. How horrible that would be. And what I've found oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes I've found churches that are so intent on doing right and standing for truth and being conservative in their approach to things that they push love out the door and being conservative becomes more important than Christ. That is a danger. It doesn't happen everywhere. But that's Ephesus. And of course, then you had the church at Smyrna. They were poor. They didn't have very much. They had to share with each other to get a good meal together, apparently. They were in a city that was known for its wealth, but they were poor Christians in that city. It is quite possible that in Smyrna they were mostly Jewish individuals and that when they converted to Christianity, the widows lost their, their pension, so to speak. Uh, they had in the Jewish religion, they had what they called the daily and the weekly and the monthly menstruation. Uh, they had the daily distribution of meat, or excuse me, of vegetables and food. They had the weekly distribution of meats and they had the monthly distribution of clothing and furniture that they would get as a Jewish widow. But if you're a Jewish widow and you convert to Christianity, you're cut off from that. They lost their income. Many of the Christians probably could not work. They were, a part, they were not a part of the Roman trade guilds because to be a part of the Roman trade guilds, you had to have a certificate that said you'd worship at the altar of Caesar. And you had gone and you'd taken a little vial of perfume or ointment and you'd spread it on a little altar that said, you worship Caesar and they give you a stamp. And if you were a carpenter or a painter or a ditch digger and you wanted to dig ditches or paint or whatever, you had to have that certificate to show that you were a part of a Greek guild. If you didn't, you kind of were on your own out there. Imagine how hard that would have been. Many of them probably had a hard time getting jobs. But I love this church because the text says you have a reputation that you're poor, but you're really rich. They had the Lord, and they loved Him, and that's all they needed. We'll skip Pergamum. We'll go to Thyatira for the sake of time tonight. Oh, the church at Thyatira. Listen to what he says about them. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patience, and here's my favorite part of the church at Thyatira. And he says that the latter work exceed the first. They were a forward-thinking group of Christians. We want to do more now than we were doing in the past. 
We're not shutting down shop. We're not saying, what can we get by? How little can we do? We're thinking forward about how much we can do for the Lord. Imagine being a part of a church like Thyatira. And then there's a church at Sardis. While Smyrna had a reputation that they were poor, but they were really rich, Sardis had a reputation that they were alive and they were really dead. Everybody talked about stuff going on at Sardis and what good they did. The truth is they were dead spiritually and that's all that mattered. Physical activity does not necessarily equate to spiritual vitality. There's a church that is my favorite on the list. That is a church at Philadelphia. Church at Philadelphia. Have you ever thought about the Lord says the church at Philadelphia? Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power but yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's powerful, isn't it? You kept my word, you've not denied my name. Of course, there's one other church, those seven, that would be the church at Laodicea. That's the one you remember that made God sick to his stomach. He says, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were on fire for me or I wish you'd never even heard of me. But how dare you have heard of me and be apathetic about it. I fear there are many churches today that are that way. My point is, the realization that I had is that different congregations have different personalities. Just like different people have different personalities. Even in the first century they did. And that was okay. And the autonomy of the church allows for that. And if it was okay then, it's still okay today. Let me shift gears for just a minute and tell you that I love, when I read the text, I love metaphors for the church. It's like God giving us a visual aid. It's like God through the Spirit saying to us, the church is like this. Quickly, here are some of my favorites. Of course, maybe the one that we think of most often, the church is a body. The Bible says, in uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, For as we are many members of one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 17. We who are many are one body. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so is Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12. Equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 23. Christ is the head of the church. His body, himself, is Savior. The church is the body. The second metaphor I'll mention is the bride of Christ. What a beautiful image of what God expects the church to be. It is the bride of Christ. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9. Behold, I show you the bride of and the wife of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It has been granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll talk about this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. The church is a bride of Christ. Think how highly we are to think of her, and how beautiful we are to strive to adorn her. The next metaphor I'll mention is one that is very popular today, and that is the church is a family of God. 
There are a number of passages we could look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 might be one that we mentioned more specifically. He says this, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. And of course, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. As we have opportunity, he says, let us do good to all men, especially to those that are of the household of faith. The church is a, is the, is a family. We're to operate as a family. It tells us a lot about how we're to treat each other, how we're to feel about each other, how we're to deal with, with interpersonal relationships. We'll have more to say about that tomorrow morning. Then the church is God's house. These final two metaphors are the ones I want to concentrate on a little bit longer tonight. The church is a house, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. The idea of a temple, a physical temple is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, comparing a metaphor, the church is like a temple. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, this happens. It happens in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17 and 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Over and over again, the church is like a building. Now, I'm not sure where I first heard of it or if I dreamt this up in my own odd mind, but it makes sense to me, so here it goes. And this is why the church, the metaphor of the church as a building is important to, in my understanding. We are in the building business. We're in the building business. And here's a concept I want you to think about tonight. In most any, in most any building, in any building that you see, it will have windows and doors, or at least a door. Windows and doors, doors and windows. And when we build the church of our Lord, there are windows and doors, and doors and windows. And what I've noticed, because I try to notice this, is most reputable businesses have more windows and doors. The places that have more doors than windows are places like casinos. They don't have any windows in them. Strip joints, I've not been in them, but I've been by them. Make sure I make that clear. <laughs> Bars, there aren't many windows in there. They don't want people to see inside. But restaurants and stores have windows. Why? Because people want to be able to look in before they walk in. Windows are to look through, doors are to walk through. People like to window shop. They like to see what kind of merchandise that a shop offers to get an idea of whether they want to go in that shop or whether they should go in that shop. Windows and doors, doors and windows. Now what we are up against in the culture that we live in today is a large number of individuals who are in direct opposition to spirituality and religiosity in general. And as a result, because we are a church as a result, we bear the burden of individuals who have done things and said things that make the church look bad instead of look bad instead of look good. And we live in a culture where many people think automatically bad of the church because, as we said this morning in our session, because they're mad at their perception of what God is like. Anytime if somebody says, I don't like God or I hate God, I always say to them, 
tell me about the God that you don't like. And usually when they give a description, it's not the same God that I worship. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about the God that they're mad at versus the God of heaven. And then the other time that people don't like the church is when somebody in the church has hurt them. And so there's some prejudice that exists. And what I've found oftentimes that even in, among religious groups there are prejudices. There are people who do not like the churches of Christ. That's just a reality. And what I want to suggest to you tonight, that in healthy churches, that we need doors and we need windows. Windows is that where people see through and see what we are like. They get a glimpse and a feel for what the place is to be like before they walk in. We need windows. And we need doors. And doors are what people walk through. Stay with me on this odd metaphor for a few minutes, if you will. It will make sense to you, I hope, before we're done. It is very difficult to get, to some, get someone to walk through those doors. It's not an easy thing. I'm not going to ask tonight, but some of you have neighbors, co-workers, friends, and family members that you have invited to walk through those doors with you for years and years now. And you give as good an invitation as you know how to give. And sometimes they'll promise you they'll be there. And then they don't show up. It's hard to get people to walk through those doors. And we have door events. And I like door events. We invite people to have a Bible study. I call that a door event. We invite people to come to a gospel meeting. It's kind of a door event. It's not a bad thing. But we invite them to come in and sit down. Imagine if we had businesses that invited people to come in and sit down but did not really tell them anything about themselves and did not have any windows where people could see in and see what's going on there. We need to have more windows. We have a lot of door events. My experience is that in the church, we need at least three window events for every one door event. What do you mean by a window event? Well, people think that we're a bunch of people that walk around with two heads on our shoulders and don't know what we're like. They're very confused at what the church is. They're scared to death to come in. They've heard stories about us, and they're afraid of us, and they're afraid of what might happen. Some of them have an idea because of their past life that if they ever walked into a church building, that the building would probably fall on them anyway. There are a lot of people out there that have a lot of reasons that they don't want to come and they don't want to be a part of church. And so what I want to suggest to you is that we need to have a multitude of window events. And those are events where people can see what we're like before we invite them to come in and sit down. Window events. We have about 15 every year major window events in the church that I preach at. I, I'm not going to tell you what window events you should have. We do every year a program, we have an activity we call Breakfast with Santa. That was in my mind because it just passed. Now, I'm not going to go into a theology of Santa Claus tonight. You can debate that on your own on Facebook. Feel free to. You'll probably lose regardless of which side you take, and you'll probably lose some friends. It's probably not worth the fight. But most of us do celebrate Christmas in some way or another. And we're in a community where there are many, many children. And so in the second Saturday in December, we had a big event. We invited our community into our building to come and their child to sit on an old man's lap and tell them what they wanted for Christmas and for them to have breakfast with us. And we had 100 members of our congregation walking around. We had about 350 members involved in the program. We had 100 members that their job was to sit down with people who came in and talk to them about the church. That was their mission and their job. And we had over 800 people that came that were not a part of the church. 
It's a window event. Those 800 people, if we give them a brochure and said next Sunday, Dale's going to preach a great sermon. You know how many of those 800 would have shown up? <clears throat> I've heard me preach, not very many. But they were willing to come into a window event. We do a fall festival every year, and we'll have about three or 400 people go out to one of our members' farms. And at some point, we'll spend a few minutes talking to them about what the church is like and what we're like. But most of the time is spent on hay rides and pumpkin cutting and eating and enjoying each other's fellowship, enjoying time together. We do a thing called truck, trunk or treat. A lot of churches do it. I'm a little nervous about it, always have been. But that nervousness goes aside when I realize that we'll have over a thousand people from our community every year that will come to that event. And everyone that comes, I know because I'm the one that does it, I stand out front with Jerry Elder. Jerry's a weird person. If you think I'm weird, he's 10 times weirder. Amen, Kyle? He's really a weird guy. He's a great guy, one of my dearest friends, and we will dress up as something. I don't know what, and I dread to think what it will be this year. But I will hand out cards that tell a little about the church to every child that walks in that place and every adult, and we'll give out a 1,000 every year to people who don't know anything about the church. And two years ago, we were having this window event. One of our young people came to me and said, I've been thinking I want to be baptized. And we stopped the event and we invited a thousand people into our building to watch a baptism. It was a little weird seeing a bunch of people dressed up in costumes and baptizing a child, a young man. But we did it. And several hundred of those people had never seen a baptism in their life. And it gave me an opportunity to teach a little bit and to talk a little bit about what baptism is. It's just a window event. Something like Financial Peace University or 48 Days of the Work You Love or whatever the event is. Times when people can look in and see, hey, these people are not that odd. They're not that weird. We have every year what we call Spring Hill's biggest Easter egg hunt. And we have a big event with it. And it's just a time for people to see, look through a window. Here's what you're, we're like. And then we invite them into a door event. They're much more, they're much more it's much more... Uh, a possibility that they will come when they see that we are not weird and that we're not perfect and that we're not going to bite their head off but that we have real struggles and real issues and real challenges that we deal with in life. Churches need windows and doors. Doors, personal Bible studies, friend days, Bible classes, small groups and homes, doors where people walk through and they learn what we're like and what we believe. They sit and they talk about more serious matter. Doors where people who look through the window can then come in and say, I kind of like what I saw. I'd like to know a little bit more. People who would never sit down and talk about salvation with those people, but now that they know those people, they will sit down and talk about them. I heard a cantankerous old preacher say years ago, if we pizza and volleyball people into the church, They'll only stay as long as we offer them the best pizza in town. Well, I don't agree with that. And I don't agree with that because that's not what the Lord modeled. The Lord fed people loaves and fishes. And some of those people were there just for the loaves and fishes. You know how I know that? The Bible tells me so. Jesus is the one who said it. He knew they were just there for the loaves and fishes. But he fed him anyway because he was trying to get deeper than just the loaves and the fishes. We need windows and doors in our churches. 
Now I want to add, add to this that not every congregation is the same. As we said, every congregation is autonomous. And in every church, every person is not the same. And most churches I know have a struggle with getting people involved in the work. Not everyone is good at the same thing. Some people we've learned are great at decorating, but if you put that person in front of somebody and ask them to speak to them, they freeze like they're in a walk-in cooler. We need to make the most of the talents of the people around us in using our individual talents to glorify God and let them use their talents for the Lord to make the best window and door of vents that we can have. We don't need to rob the talent of another person by doing what they can only do when we could, might be able to do other things. I've never seen a house with more doors than windows. I'd recommend you have a lot of windows so that people can see. The text will talk in Acts chapter 8 about how people saw the grace of the Lord. And isn't that really what we're trying to do here? We're trying to get people to see the grace that Paul writes to Titus and says God has made available to all men. It's there for everyone. We just want them to look through and see what it's like. Because you see, it doesn't matter what their life is like. They're sinners. They're going to be lost whether they ever have a window of in in their life at all or not. They'll be lost. But I want to suggest to you tonight that for every one of them, just as for us, that our God is a better Savior than they are a sinner. And our God can save every person. And that's why we do what we do. And that's why I'm so very thankful for the local church and the impact it has in the community where it is. Because we represent the Lord to people. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, I don't know who's a member of this church and who's not, but it's possible there's somebody walked in here tonight or was invited by somebody, they're a guest of someone, and you're not a Christian. I want to close tonight by telling you, you can leave this building as a Christian. Is there a more beautiful sentence in human language than that? God can save you from your sin. It does not matter what it is. God is a better Savior than you are a sinner. And tonight, he would gladly, delightedly, and gave his very best so that he could say to you, you're saved. If you'll turn from sin, it's hurt your life enough already. You know it does not a good way to live your life. If you'll confess that you believe Jesus is the Son of God, and if you'll submit to allowing yourself to be baptized, immersed in water, as Jesus said, for the forgiveness of your sins, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. You can be his tonight. And if you're a Christian and you're apart from him, make tonight the night that you come home. Will you come while we stand and sing?